Money. We all need it and we all burn through it. Money Stuff, a quarterly podcast in partnership with United Way of Greater Atlanta and the SunTrust Foundation, takes a look at our relationship with money and why we do what we do with it. You can also find Money Stuff videos chock-a-block with tips, and you can put critical financial information in the palm of your hand with Money Game 2, a free app created by the United Way of Greater Atlanta and the SunTrust Foundation, featuring trivia and fun, easy-to-understand tools to take your financial education to the next level. Download the Money Stuff Podcast Series and the Money Game 2 app at iTunes. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We have a sad Christmas mystery today. And it's one that is a listener request from Lauren, Rachel, Hella, Lizzie, and probably other people. It's something we've heard people ask for a lot. We are going to talk about five children from the Sodder family of West Virginia whose home caught fire on Christmas Eve, 1945. Their bodies were not recovered, and they also were never seen again. So... That sounds dreadfully sad. It's actually not as sad as what I had originally been researching for today's episode. And I decided I had to put that one off until after the new year because it was just too sad to talk about right now. Uh, so you all can look forward to something even sadder in January. Uh, in other news, I'm tasting, I'm taking suggestions for happier Christmassy episodes for next Christmas because I feel like mine for the last couple years have been extraordinarily sad. Well, and I am kind of relieved that I'm not the one that picked this. It's kind of been on my list, but I usually am the one that goes for the horrible stories. Mm-hmm. So it's good to not always be me. <laughs> it was my turn this time. Well, and last year, one of my picks was the Christmas, the Christmas tree ship, and that one was also just dreadfully, dreadfully sad for the holidays. You do know how to pick a tearjerker. I do. So to shift gears and go to the, the more somber story, uh, Giorgio Sadu was born in Tula, Sardinia in 1895. He immigrated to the United States in 1908. He was only 13 years old at the time, and he was in the company of his older brother. At some point, he changed his name to George Sauter, and the brother who had accompanied him returned to Sardinia. George worked as a laborer in Pennsylvania before moving to West Virginia, and there he eventually started his own trucking company. He met Jenny Cipriani, who would become his wife at a local music store. Jenny had been born in Italy and had come to the United States at the age of three. They moved from Smithers to just outside Fayetteville, West Virginia, where George focused his business on hauling coal. They lived in a two-story frame house about two miles north of town. George and Jenny Sauter had ten children together. On Christmas Eve 1945, nine of these children were at home with them. The tenth was away in the army. George and two of his older sons, the 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr., had all gone to bed early. John and George Jr. had gone to bed in their attic bedroom and George Sr. in the parents' bedroom next to the office, which was on the home's ground floor. The daughters, Marion, age 17, Martha Lee, age 12, Jenny, age 8, Betty, age 6, and sons, Maurice, age 14, and Louis, age 10, all asked to stay up late. The younger ones wanted to play with the toys Marion had bought them from her job at a dime store. And their mother had agreed, telling Maurice and Lewis that they had to close the chicken coop, feed the cows, and lock up before they all went to bed. 
Then she went to bed herself, taking the baby, Sylvia, who was two or three, depending on what source you look at, to sleep in the crib in her parents' room. A little bit after midnight on Christmas Day, Jenny woke up to the phone ringing in the office, and so she ran to answer it, and she presumed that this was a wrong number or a prank. A voice she didn't recognize asked for a name she didn't recognize and then laughed. While she was awake, she noticed that the downstairs lights were still on and the curtains were all still open and the front door was unlocked. So she went to turn all the lights off and close up the house for the night. Then she went back to bed. Not long after, Jenny woke up again, this time after hearing what sounded like something hitting the roof and then rolling down. She got up and investigated, but found nothing and went back to bed. Maybe another hour later, she woke up again, and this time she smelled smoke. She woke up George Sr., and they realized that the office was on fire. They started calling for their children and trying to get everyone out of the house. They grabbed Sylvia from her crib. Marion had fallen asleep on the sofa downstairs and made it out as well. John and George Jr. came down from their attic room. According to an article in the Charleston Gazette-Mail, in the initial police report, John and George Jr. were described as stopping in the younger children's rooms on the way down and shaking them all awake. But in later statements, they said that they called to the other children on the way down. Once both parents and Marion, John, and George Jr. got outside, they realized the younger children hadn't made it out with them. George Sr. turned back and found that the bottom of the stairs to the upper rooms was already in flames. So he went back outside to try to get in through the windows. First, he broke one of the windows that he could reach, slicing his arm in the process. But the lower level of the house was at this point basically engulfed. George normally kept a ladder against the side of the house. But when he went to get it, it was not there. Later, it was found about 75 feet away from its normal spot, down an embankment. Then he had the idea to park one of his coal trucks beside the house and basically use it to climb up to the upper windows, but neither of his trucks would start. From the yard, the rest of the family didn't see any sign of the younger children at the windows. Marion ran to a neighbor's house to raise the alarm. They tried to call the fire department but couldn't get an operator to respond, so then they tried calling a local tavern and got no answer there either. Finally, the neighbor drove into town, remember they lived a couple of miles outside of town, to try to find the fire chief in person, which they finally did. So in case you have some question marks in your head uh, that would be pretty natural, this was actually before the existence of 911 or any other such emergency hotline. The Fayetteville Fire Department had no fire siren to summon the firefighters. Instead, an operator would contact one of the firemen who would call someone else who would call someone else in a phone tree situation when there was a fire. So not quite the efficient system we have today. No. And based on Fayetteville's size and the fact that the fire department is currently a volunteer fire department, it was probably a fire department or it was probably a volunteer fire department at the time, too, although I wasn't able to confirm that specifically. And almost certainly the department itself was short-staffed in the wake of World War II. So there were lots of mitigating factors in the fire department's response, but ultimately they were still unbelievably late. The neighbor tracked down Chief F.J. Morris of the Fayetteville Fire Department around one in the morning Christmas Day. The fire truck arrived at the Sauter home almost seven hours later. By then, of course, the building was destroyed, with all of its remaining structural elements collapsing into the basement. That had taken only about 30 or 40 minutes. 
On Christmas morning, the fire department conducted a brief search, expecting to find the bodies of several children in the rubble. And instead, they reported finding only a few bones and pieces of internal organs. But they told the parents that they had not found anything. The fire chief told them that the bones of their children had probably burned to ash in the fire. Since it was Christmas Day, they postponed a more in-depth search for later. The AP Wire carried a very brief report of the fire, which the New York Times ran on the 26th under the headline, 11 Children Die in Four Home Fires, Five Perish in West Virginia, Three in Pennsylvania, Two in Kansas, One in New York. It's heartbreaking in its simplicity. To quote from it, The victims, ranging in age from 6 to 15 years, were trapped on the top floor of their home despite the frantic efforts of their parents and other brothers and sisters to rescue them. A state police inspector ultimately declared that faulty wiring had caused the blaze. The coroner convened a jury of six citizens, which found the cause of the children's deaths to be, quote, fire or suffocation. On December 29th, George Sauter bulldozed a few feet of soil over the remains of the house, burying what he believed to be the bodies of his children in a mass grave. The surviving family planted flowers there, basically turning it into a shrine for Maurice, Martha Lee, Louis, Jenny, and Betty. Their mother, Jenny, would wear only black for the rest of her life. Almost immediately, though, the family developed doubts and suspicions about what had happened in the fire. And we will talk about them after a brief break for a word from a sponsor. We've talked about before that it's exhausting sometimes at the end of the workday to even contemplate having to go to the store and pick up ingredients to make a meal. We will go to great lengths at my house to avoid doing exactly that. (laughs) I have that thing where if I'm on my way home from work, I'm so tired that any extraneous stop just makes me red rage angry. I'm like, no, I want to go home and put on comfy clothes and sit. I do not want to go to the grocery store, but I do want something super delicious to eat. And that is where Blue Apron comes in. They can deliver farm fresh ingredients and step by step recipes to your home that's going to enable you to create healthy handcrafted meals right there in your own kitchen without going to the grocery store and without making the often terrible mistake of ordering takeout which is a very slippery slope for me uh so for less than ten dollars per meal blue apron will send you fresh ingredients they're perfectly proportioned they make cooking healthy meals really easy and really fun so you don't have to mess with the grocery store trip you're not going to have waste from unused ingredients sitting there becoming progressively more horrifying in your refrigerator and you will learn to cook with these specialty ingredients that are normally really hard to find i've said before i feel like i'm getting great cooking instruction every time i make a meal oh yeah Definitely. Uh, It's great for date night. It's great for cooking with friends. If you have a family, they have family plans now with kid-friendly ingredients so everyone can cook together and eat really well and have fun. It's a great way to kind of teach kids about nutrition. And I like that each meal is only about 500 to 700 calories per serving, but I still push away from the table completely full and satisfied. Mm-hmm, me too. Often, if you're in a low-cal arena in the, the food zone, it's not so satisfying at the end. But that is not the case with Blue Apron. Cooking takes about half an hour to 45 minutes. If you're me, again, because I'm probably yapping while I'm cooking. Shipping is flexible and free, and the menus are always new, so you're not going to get the same thing twice. And they will work around your schedule, so uh, as well as your dietary preferences. And their experts are picking really beautiful seasonal ingredients that just end up in making the most delicious and really sort of mind-blowing dishes. On the upcoming menu, 
I got instant drool when I saw spinach, parmesan, and parsnip risotto. It looks so creamy and delicious. What are mm-hmm. you eyeballing? I am eyeballing the spiced roast chicken and collard greens with maple butter and thyme. I always thought that I did not like collard greens because I did not like the way that my mother prepared them when I was a child. But we've had several Blue Apron recipes with collards that I have skeptically tried. And having learned three or four different ways to incorporate collards into dishes, I I am a convert now. I no longer just say, I hate collards. I won't eat them. Yeah, I will say even foods that I normally am like, not so much. If it comes in a Blue Apron uh meal, I'll be like, I'll try it. And every time I'm always like, oh, this is good. I just didn't. I just didn't know how to do it right. I just didn't know or I just had not had it this way that is super delicious. So you too can cook incredible meals, try new things that you may have thought you didn't like, but you're probably going to like them in a Blue Apron dish. You're going to be blown away by the quality and freshness. It's just a better way to cook. Check out this week's menu and get your first two meals for free by going to blueapron.com slash history. That is correct. That is our treat. The first two meals are on us when you go to blueapron.com slash history. In the days after the fire, the surviving members of the family gradually started to put together a pattern of strange events that they remembered from the days before it. A passerby had looked at their fuse box and said it would burn the house down. And an insurance agent, when George refused to buy a policy from him, had gotten angry and said something threatening along the lines of, your house will burn to the ground. The children also later recalled that they'd seen someone in a truck watching them come home from school one day. Mrs. Sauter also didn't believe what she had been told about her children's skeletons being burned up to ash in the fire. So she started doing experiments where she would burn things like chicken bones and beef joints that were left over from cooking in their wood stove. And she always, as you would expect, had bones left over afterward. The family also wondered, if the fire was caused because of faulty wiring, why had the lights in the house worked as they fled? They had turned them off before bed, but as they were leaving and trying to run out of the house, they had turned them back on. Yeah, that's one of the things they were really insistent about when when interviewed later on in their lives was that they would not have been able to find their way out if the lights hadn't worked. So right. the wiring was on fire. Why did the lights still work? Uh, also, when a repairman came out to restore the telephone line that had been destroyed in the fire, he told the Sodders that it looked like it had been cut, not burned, and that the cut was only about two feet from the pole. Tied to the cut phone wire was a report that someone had witnessed a man stealing a block and tackle from the Sodders garage that night. That man later confessed to cutting the telephone wires, saying that he thought they were power lines. He denied knowing anything about the fire. This whole story is a little like, odd. oh, you only meant to cut the power. Yeah, there's there's a lot of his story. It doesn't quite make sense. While playing one day near the side of the fire, Sylvia found a hard rubber object that was hollow and had a cap that screwed off of it. And George concluded that this was a napalm bomb and that it was what Jenny had heard hit the roof and roll down in the middle of the night before the fire. So he concluded that that was how the fire had started. And to kind of corroborate that, there was a bus driver that also reported seeing someone lobbing, quote, balls of fire at the Sodder's roof on the night of the fire. Then there were reports that people had actually seen the Sodder children. A woman at a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, West Virginia, told police that she had served them breakfast after the fire. 
A woman working at a hotel in Charleston gave a statement to police that she had seen four of the five children there a week after Christmas. She said they'd been accompanied by four adults, two women and two men, whose demeanor was frosty and hostile. George and his wife Jenny wrote to the FBI in 1947, asking for help finding their missing children. J. Edgar Hoover wrote the couple a reply, effectively saying that this was not within the FBI's jurisdiction. However, he did offer to assist local fire and police if desired. But the local officials declined that offer. The Sodders continued to write to the FBI for help every couple of years. Also in 1947, George Sodder saw a picture of school children in New York in a newspaper, and he became completely convinced that one of the children in that picture was his daughter, Betty. He drove to Manhattan demanding to see her, but was refused. However, George and Jenny Sodder became completely convinced that their children were in fact alive, even if that one that looked like Betty in the picture was not really their child. They hired a long series of private investigators, starting with C.C. Tinsley, who unearthed a couple of odd connections. One was that that threatening insurance agent had also been part of the coroner's jury. Another tidbit that Tinsley discovered was that Fire Chief Morris, who had told the Sodders previously that he had found no remains of their children in the ruins of the house, had confided to a minister that he had, in reality, found a heart, put it in a dynamite box, and buried it. They dug up this box and took it to a funeral home. And the funeral director said that it looked to him like a fresh beef liver, not something that had been in a fire. This, of course, started rumors that the fire chief had gotten a beef liver and buried it in a box very recently with the hopes of getting the Sodders to stop their investigation, the conclusion being that he wanted it to end because he had something to hide. It was really at this point, with the weird box and the series of detectives and this ongoing search, that newspapers around the country started to pick up the story. That meant that then tips started to come in from all over, but none of them panned out. George Sodder dedicated a lot of the rest of his life to traveling all around the United States to search for his missing children, following up on all these scattered leads. The family started another investigation of the site itself in August of 1949, this time with the help of Oscar B. Hunter, a pathologist from Washington, D.C. He found, among other things, a few pieces of vertebrae, which he sent to the Smithsonian Institution for analysis. According to their report, the vertebrae were all from the same person, and based on their development, they probably belonged to a 16- or 17-year-old boy. The oldest solder son unaccounted for after the fire was younger than that. In the words of the Smithsonian report, it is however possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 maturation. The report also said that one would have expected to find complete skeletons of all the children given the conditions of the fire. The Smithsonian's involvement wound up leading to hearings in the West Virginia capital of Charleston, the governor and the superintendent of the state police told the Sodders that this case was hopeless and they declared it closed. In 1952, the Sodders put up a billboard, it displayed pictures of their five missing children, and it was low to the ground so that if you walked over to read it, the pictures were at eye level. It read, quote, what was their fate? Kidnapped? Murdered? Or are they still alive? And it offered a $5,000 reward and gave additional information about the fire and the children. 
Eventually, that reward was increased to $10,000, and they passed out flyers with all of this same information as well. George continued to travel to personally investigate tips that the family got. He looked into the idea that Martha was in a convent in St. Louis, that someone had overheard a conversation about the fire before it happened, that a distant relative of his wife Jenny's had the children, that a woman had overheard a drunk man in a Mexican border town telling someone else the story of his true identity. It went on and on and on. In response to that last one, uh, George did track down the woman who wrote the letter, although she was not willing to talk to him. He found the men she had described, though, and they told him they wished they could help, but that he had the wrong people. He apparently doubted for the rest of his life that that that, that they were being honest and, and wished he had stayed and pressed them further with his questions. Jenny received an envelope with a Central City, Kentucky postmark in 1968, and in it was a picture with a cryptic note that included the name Louis Sauter and some strange number and letter, numbers and letters. Also written on it was, I love brother Frankie, but none of the Sauter children were named Frankie or Frank. To all the surviving family, the man shown in this picture did look like a grown version of Louis, who had been nine years old at the time of the fire. The private investigator that they sent to Kentucky to investigate never got back in touch with them. After receiving this cryptic letter, they revised their billboard, adding in the picture that purported to be of the grown-up Lewis with new text that said, After 30 years, it is not too late to investigate. On Christmas Eve 1945, our home was set afire and five of our children, ages 5 through 14, kidnapped. The officials blamed defective wiring, although lights were still burning after the fire started. The official report stated that the children died in the fire. However, no bones were found in the residue, and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. What was the motive of law officers involved? What did they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? Why did they lie and force us to accept those lies? In 1969, George Sauter died. Afterward, Jenny Sauter put up a sturdy fence around her home and then started adding to it in an act Smithsonian Magazine describes as, quote, building layer after layer between her and the outside. The billboard remained until Jenny died about 20 years after her husband. And now we're going to talk about some theories for what happened. But before we do that, we will have another brief word from sponsor. We've said so many times we're a little terrified the holidays are almost here. We still have so much to do, so that means we do not have time to go to the post office. There's the traffic, the parking, or for my case, when I am at home, the walking a long way, <laughs> loaded down with packages. So instead, you can use Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season because everything that you would do at the post office, you can instead do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it, and then just hand it off to the person who delivers your mail. It's very easy and convenient. Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code STUFF for this special offer. That includes a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com. Enter STUFF. So to get back to the story, there are so many unanswered questions about this fire. The big one 
Why were there no bodies found, especially considering that there were plenty of other structural pieces and damaged household items after the fire was over? Why did it take seven hours for the fire department to get there, even with that whole phone tree situation? It was actually one article that suggested that the fire chief was not capable of driving the fire truck for some reason and had to wait for somebody who could. But why would that take seven hours? And where did the vertebrae come from? One theory is that they were in the fill dirt that George used to bury the remains of the home. But if so, whose were they? The bone fragments analyzed by the Smithsonian have since disappeared, so they can't be further analyzed for DNA. Why was the ladder that was normally propped by the house not there, especially since George insisted that was where it always was? That's where he kept it. Why would the coal trucks not start? George's answer to that one became that somebody had tampered with them on purpose, although descendants of the surviving children have theorized that he might have flooded their engines in his case in his haste to try to get them moving. And if the children had been trapped in their rooms at the top of the house, why couldn't the survivors outside see them at the windows? An obvious answer is that they had already succumbed to smoke inhalation. And another theory... According to Fire Marshal Sterling Lewis, interviewed by NPR, when children reach the age of 12 or 13, they generally try to escape a fire, but younger children usually try to hide. Yeah, he told very sad stories about finding the bodies of children curled up in strange places because they, rather than trying to get out, they right. tried to hide from the fire. So... Then the question becomes, if they were not in the house when it burned down, if they were still alive, why did they never contact their parents, even once they were grown? One theory is that, for some reason, doing so would have put their parents' lives at risk. Well, we don't know if one of them did, since there was that weird cryptic letter. Yeah. But it's super cryptic. Uh, there are so many theories for what happened to the Sauter children. The first and most obvious is that they really did die in the fire, although that does not account for why no one found their remains. And all the other theories are basically entirely speculative. Some of them kind of feel like they're pulled out of thin air. One such notion is that the mafia had tried to recruit the Sodders and the Sodders had refused, which led to the kidnapping of their children as retaliation. Local law enforcement, on the other hand, have said that there was no known mafia activity in that part of West Virginia at the time. Another theory is that this was all some sort of conspiracy and that someone known to the family played a part, kidnapping the children by claiming they were going to take them somewhere safe. Sylvia, who was just a toddler at the time of the fire and whose youngest memories are of that night, told NPR in 2005 that she wanted people to uphold her parents' dream of keeping the story alive. She was still living as of 2013. And as at that point, she, her husband, and their daughter all steadfastly believed that her siblings did not die in that fire. It remains a mystery. It does. I don't know what I think about this. Yeah, me either. I mean, there's always the Occam's razor thing, and you're like, well, the most likely, but there's so much weirdness around it that... Right. When I started researching it and, and knew very little about the fact about it besides the house burned down, there was a billboard. Those are sort of the two facts that I knew. I thought most likely that they had died in the fire and it was a terrible tragedy. And I, like, it just seems totally logical to me that a grieving family would latch on to the idea that they were still living and spend the rest of their lives looking for it. But then once we got into like, seriously, where were the, I couldn't find any reasonable scientific explanation for how bodies would not have been recovered if they had really been there. Uh, and then the whole rest of it became so weird that now I sort of think 
maybe they weren't in the house when it burned down, but then I had no idea. Yeah, the part where it always turns for me where I'm like, something fishy happened is the the beef liver that's allegedly a human heart. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's a really dicey behavior. Yeah. With no explanation unless he knew more than more than he was saying. We don't know. It's all speculative. Yeah. Do you have a peppier listener mail to get us off of the sad loss of people? Is it peppier? Okay. It's not not peppy. It's not super cheery. Uh, It's from Adrian, and it is about our recent episode on the Gallipoli campaign. And Adrian says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I am a recent, albeit avid, listener of your podcast. So firstly, thank you for all your great work. I wanted to write in after your recent episode on the Gallipoli campaign. I must admit that as an Australian, I almost couldn't bear to listen to anything more on Gallipoli after what felt like years of studying Gallipoli throughout high school and the constant invocations of it around Anzac Day. This is not a criticism that I didn't miss this in history class. It was only after high school that I realized that not everyone in the world knew every detail or cared as much about the campaign as we Australians do. Nevertheless, I was keen to hear a foreign perspective, and I wanted to say I thought you guys did a great job covering the campaign in the limited time you have. I especially commend you for mentioning some of the criticisms surrounding Gallipoli and Anzac in general. In that regard, I found it interesting that you used the word Anzac myth rather than the more common usage of Anzac legend. While there may be only minor semantic differences, I think that myth implies more falsity than legend. Throughout high school, I was never taught that the values attributed to Anzac troops were the result of selective and embellished accounts of journalists like C.W. Bean, of Ellis Ashmed Barlett, or simply concocted, i.e. a myth. In fact, I don't think that you emphasize just how significant the Anzac legend born in Gallipoli is in Australian culture. The word Anzac is even protected by legislation and people must get permission to use it. While in university, we we history students do question elements of Anzac, outside of university, criticizing Anzac can be considered tantamount to blasphemy. People have even lost their jobs over public criticism. Around the centenary here, there was also a huge backlash over brands capitalizing on Anzac or, quote, Branzac to sell products, indicating the sacred nature of our national narrative or, as historian King Inglis calls it, our civil religion. The reasons behind the importance of Anzac are a complex mix of political, historical, and social elements that I could go on about it for days. However, I'll stop myself and conclude by saying thank you for covering this part of Australian history. And then she sends some suggestions for some other Australian history. Thank you so much, Adrian. I wanted to read this uh, email today for a couple of reasons. One is that I'm not totally sure where in my research process I picked up the term Anzac myth. I'm not sure if one of my sources used it or if it just stuck in my head that way rather than legend. But when I did uh, look into this after Adrian's email, I did find that legend was a lot more common uh, in various sites than myth was. Uh, and the other is that we had several people to write in to talk about how Anzac is, Anzac is basically protected as a term. Uh, and they're like, when you make Anzac biscuits, there's only one recipe that you can sell as Anzac biscuits. So there's just a lot of sort of protecting this, this term and how it is used within Australia. So thank you so much, Adrian, for writing to us about this. It also cracked me up that she she clarified that it was not a criticism that she didn't miss this in history class because uh, we hear that joke like 500 times a day. <laughs> so, <laughs> it delighted me that, that Adrian was sort of like specifically like, I'm not saying that. 
that thing that you hear 300 times a day. Uh, so anyway, thank you, Adrian, for writing to us. If you would like to write to us for, about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. If you would like to learn a little more about something similar to what we've talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website. It is HowStuffWorks.com. Put the word unsolved in the search bar and you will find a whole quiz about various unsolved mysteries throughout history. If you would like to come to our website, we are at mistinhistory.com and we have show notes for all of the podcasts Holly and I have worked on. We have an archive of all episodes we have done ever. So you can do all of that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.